Well, hallelujah. So 1 John chapter number 4, we're going to be beginning in verse number 1 in this Bible study. We're looking at in this message why our church does not use Bethel music slash Jesus culture. And then we're also tagging in there Hillsong. Uh, now, many people know who Hillsong is, um, but they have made a definite change in approximately, approximately the last 10 years. Um, so their older stuff is a little bit different than their newer stuff, but uh, just so that you understand, we're mainly looking at those two people because they really control the modern music industry. And I say industry because it is an industry. It is... A, it is a uh, money-making industry. Um, you'll hardly ever be able to go listen to any of these people without giving them money. Um, so it is definitely an industry. Um, so there's a lot of industries out there in the Christian world. This one is uh, just like the others. So, But we're going to look at First John chapter number 4, beginning in verse number 1, just to set our Bible study off. John writes here, through the inspiration of God. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, we're going to stop right there for a second, but I just want you to see that God is telling us and instructing us as his people to not believe everything. If you believe everything that somebody tells you, then you're going to be misled. So the way that we know as God's children, what we're supposed to believe and not believe is what he says next. We have to try the spirit to see if it's of God. Um, one, of the, one of the problems that we see in the church world is that if anybody names the name Jesus and says anything, a lot of people naively will believe whatever they are told. You can't do that. Okay, the Bible instructs you not to do that. Don't believe every spirit. What are we supposed to do? Try it to see if it's of God. Now, the word try here, um, I don't get technical whenever I do definitions. I don't think that it's beneficial to look at the Greek and Hebrew and all this. I believe that they translated it great whenever they did the King James. However, I use the Webster's Dictionary, uh, just the 1828 first one that ever came out. Um, use that Webster's Dictionary. The word try, you know what try means. Try harder, right? You know, I'll try to climb the ladder. But what does it mean? Uh, it, it means to examine it, to prove it by testing it out, to attempt it, press on it, and search into it. So if you're going to try something, and if you're not going to believe every spirit but try it, that means that you actually have to examine that spirit to see if it's of God. Try that thing out, prove it, make sure it is of it, search into it, uh, examine that thing. Prove it by testing it. Well, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but what would you imagine is our main test to see if something's of God? What would you, what, if, does it have to belong to my denomination to know whether it's of God? No. Well, that's good because we're non-denominational. But does it have to belong to my group? Does it have to belong to my, you know, oh, I know them. No. It has to line up with this book. It has to line up with this holy book. This is the be-all, end-all. I said it's the final authority. So I'm from East Texas. So in East Texas, we say the be-all, end-all. Uh, but this is the be-all, end-all for Christians. If this is not, then, then like I said, everything's up for grabs. But if the Bible is the final authority, whenever somebody says they're of God, I'm going to weigh what they say and what they do through the word of God. So that's going to put a little bit of the onus back on you because you're going to have to know enough of the Word of God to examine somebody. You're not going to be able to just trust pastor. You're not going to be able to just trust Sunday school teacher. You're going to need to know the Word of God enough so that if somebody tells you something, you can know about where to go and examine what they've said and see if it lines up with this. If it doesn't line up with this, then it's questionable category. If it lines up with this, then it's usually right. Amen? It's always right. So this is, when, whenever we're talking about trying the spirit to see if it's of God, what we're looking at is we're making sure what people say, if they're speaking for God, we're making sure that it goes filtered through the Bible, okay? That it doesn't 
it doesn't contradict the Bible. So if I tell you that Jesus was actually a horse, you don't believe that because the Bible doesn't say that. That would contradict the Bible, right? Or if I tell you, you know, there's actually 18 gods and I'm one of them. You don't believe that. Why? Because that contradicts the Bible. Because in the Bible, God said that there's only one God. He said, beside him, there's none. Amen? So when, when we're talking about trying the Spirit, what we're doing is we're just examining what people say and what they do through this. So this is how I know that maybe a group like, say, the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I know they're not right. You know why? Because they don't believe that God's eternal. They believe that God was a man one time, that he graduated into being God, and that he had little baby gods. First one was Jesus, the second one was Satan. And that if we're good enough, we're going to get to become a God over our own universe. The last time I checked, the Bible said there's only one God. So right out the gate, that tells me a lot, but it tells me it's nothing personal against them. It's nothing personal against what they do, but I know they're not of God. I've tested them. Why? Because my opinion? No. Because what they say, what they teach and preach does not line up with this. So as we weigh, um, and tonight we're looking at um, Hillsong and Jesus Culture slash Bethel. As we weigh those things, we're not so much picking on what they wear or what they sound like which some of y'all probably could. But what we're doing is we're weighing what they've said, okay? What they've said. We're, we're concrete going on what they've said. Now, um, like I said, you wouldn't, whenever it comes to worship, I'm not going to sing, if I know what I know now about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though they have Jesus Christ in the name, I know they're not of God, right? So, would I sing a song that is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints song in this church? No. No, I wouldn't. Why? Because they're worshiping a different God than I worship. Whenever they write a song and they pin it, they're pinning it to a different God than the one I know. They're pinning it to a, they're, they're writing and singing to a different God than the God of the Bible. Okay, so that's where that comes in at. And when we're looking at worship, that's why that's important. Because if somebody, if somebody um, is worshiping and talking about a God that is not true, that doesn't meet this test, then I don't want to associate or I don't want to interact with that. Why? Why? Well, we're not supposed to yoke together with those things. Amen? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be going through a few scriptures tonight, so lick those fingers and turn those pages. Second Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to go to verse number 14 and show you why this is important. You wouldn't want to sing a song that lies about God, would you? If somebody was singing a song that said God's a unicorn, probably not going to sing that one. Because that's not who God is. Okay. So, just, again, just because somebody says the name God and they sing, that doesn't mean it's our God. That doesn't mean it's a Christian song. That doesn't mean it's our Jesus. So, hang with me. I'll show you all that in just a little bit. Just hang with me. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. Look at verse number 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? The separation here is the believer and the unbeliever. And we're not to be yoked together. So if somebody is an unbeliever, we're not supposed to yoke together with them. What does it mean to yoke together? It means to work together to worship together, to strive together. It doesn't, mean that, it, it, it doesn't mean that I can't work around unbelievers. That's not yoking with them because we're in the world. 
Okay, we have to do, we have to go to the DMV and talk to, you know, maybe the lady at the window is not a believer. Or maybe some, your coworkers is, you know, not a believer. That doesn't give you the right to quit your job necessarily, right? Yoking together is when you, you, you worship together or you, maybe you date, you marry. Uh, yoking together is when you learn from them and they learn from you about God. It is, that's where you kind of get into that ground of yoking. The yoke is what bound two oxes together. It was a, a bar that they would put across them. And they, the one couldn't go unless the other one went. Okay? So if you're unequally yoked, if you've ever seen a picture of an ox and a mule yoked together, that yoke is slanted and that mule's having a hard time. Hard time. It's just hard. And, and the ox is too because he's, you know, leaned over. But um, it's, a, it's a really staggering picture, but it shows you what it actually looks like in the spirit for you to yoke together with unbelievers. So you're going to end up setting yourself up for a hard time. And if you, if you think that it's, you know what, well, I know that they don't know God. I know they're singing about somebody who's not God, but I'm going to yoke together with them. It actually is going to end up impairing you at some point. It may not initially. You may not see it at the beginning. But some point down the line, God's word's not going to return null or void. So at some point, you're going to reap that harvest um, from being unequally yoked. And um, when that is, we don't know, but I just want to obey God, okay? Um, so one more thing that we're going to go through on this point. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to share with you is that whenever, why is it important that I tell you that we don't, why we don't use Bethel, Okay. Because uh, they're, they're actually the number one music-making uh, worship complex in the world. Um, they have the most songs being out there. They're, they're replacing artists left and right down the, down the charts. They're extremely popular. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want somebody to come into this church and hear us sing a Bethel song and say, Oh, Pastor must agree with their teaching. They must be Christian. And to follow that Bethel song to the Bethel church and then begin to listen to the teachings that come out of that church. I'm responsible spiritually for these types of things. I'll stand before God. So these, you know, whenever you teach or you preach or you endorse somebody in ministry, it's a very important thing that you don't take lightly. So I don't want somebody coming into this church, or I don't even want somebody coming into my house and hearing that and then associating that with me endorsing this ministry, because it happens. You, you may not have done it, but I promise you I've done it. I promise you I've, if you know somebody listens to a certain type of music or song or whatever, I may follow that singer and find that church, and then listen to a message from that church to see what they're all about. Um, so I don't want that. That's number one. Number two, um, the sad reality is if you sing songs in America, they're more than likely copyrighted. More than likely they're copyrighted. You know, this is the only Bible in the world that's not copyrighted. You can, you can make your own King James Bible, and you don't have to pay anybody a dime except for the paper that you printed on and the ink. But you don't have to pay anybody a dime for printing the King James Bible. You try to print the NIV, they're going to sue you. You try to print the New King James, they're going to sue you. You try to print any other Bible, you're going to get sued by a publishing house. If you try to sing these songs without paying royalties to these companies, they will sue you. I say companies, churches. If you try to sing a Bethel music song without paying the royalties to the CCLI, you'll get sued. We will get sued. If you project the words or you sing the songs to a group above this many, you have to pay that much royalty. So again, I don't agree with all that. Y'all know I don't agree with that. We don't even take about offering at our church. So you know I don't agree with any of that. I don't believe in selling books, DVDs. I don't believe in selling the gospel. I'm not a gospel pimp. God has what he needs. If he needs it, he'll get it. I don't need to beg or borrow for God. He's the, he's the provider, right? But these people sell these songs, and if you use that song without giving them their royalties, you're going to get sued. If you try to use CCLI songs without paying that yearly or monthly due, you're going to get sued. 
Um, so it's the same thing. So again, I don't want to give them any money. I don't support their ministry. You'll see why. I don't believe that they're theologically right. You'll see why. So A, I don't want to yoke with them. B, I don't want people to follow the music to the teaching. C, I don't want to pay their royalties. And every, every time that uh, a song is downloaded on CCLI, they get an increased royalty. So if you use the music, you download the song, they get an increase on their royalty. CCLI is a part of ministry I didn't know anything about. I just, when God called me to ministry, he called me to preach. He called me to, to teach. He called me to, you know, preach the Bible and, uh, you know, go and make disciples but when you get into ministry, there's things like that. You didn't, I didn't even know people had to pay music to, you know, pay, I didn't know that. I don't like it one bit. And I don't agree with it, but I'm certainly not going to be paying royalties to a church that is not theologically right, okay? Um, and again, using their music affirms their doctrine. Using their music affirms the doctrine. If you use the music of the Church of Christ, Latter-day Saints, you're affirming the doctrine. Um, why? Why is it important about worship? Well, God thinks highly of worship. Let me show you this. Leviticus chapter number 10. Leviticus chapter number 10. Worship is the most beautiful thing that we can do, but there are times God doesn't want it. Leviticus chapter number 10. Once I lay this groundwork for you, we're going to get into the details. Do you believe that people can worship God any way they want? Or does God prescribe certain ways to worship God? If, if, if you look at the Old Testament, it's awesome. Because God, when, when God set things up, he said exactly what he wanted. He told Noah exactly how to build the ark. If Noah said, you know, that's a pretty nice design, you said there, God. But I kind of like it uh, a little bit different. I don't think that boat would have lasted uh, you know what I'm saying? God, when God says he wants it this way, he wants it this way. God says marriage is between a man and a woman. Guess what? It don't matter what I think. God said it's between a man and a woman. God says murder's wrong. Guess what? It don't matter what I think. It's wrong. So there's, there's these things. And when it comes to worship, God says you come this way. When, um, when God set up the tabernacle and the temple, he set it up to have an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. If they didn't set it up that way, guess what? I believe that Ark of the Covenant would have killed them. Y'all know who Uzziah is? When they were traveling with the Ark of the Covenant, only the Levitical priesthood could touch it. They had to touch it a certain way. They had certain rules in place. This guy is doing a noble thing. The Ark is about to fall. It's God's Ark. And this guy just reaches his hand up to touch it, to steady it. And he gets killed instantly instantly was killed he did a noble thing but he didn't do it the way god said to do it so sincere is okay but you can be sincerely wrong so sincerity is great but you can be sincerely wrong and i would say a lot of people that follow the jesus culture bethel music they're sincere but they're sincerely wrong so sincerity is great and hopefully, if they hear a message like this, or you maybe you share some of these things that you're going to learn, maybe it'll help them kind of get out of that. The, that sincerity will help them kind of get over that. So here's what I want you to see. Leviticus chapter 10, strange fire, strange fire. Now, God required fire on the altar, right? God requires fire on the altar. This will preach. But, but you know what? If there's no fire, there's no sacrifice. But there had to be fire on the altar. But God prescribed fire a certain way. Look at this in verse 1. It says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them a censer, put the fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Now, did they offer it to God? Did they bring God an offering? but they didn't do it the way God said to do it. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, This is that that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron just saw his sons killed. Aaron just saw his sons killed, and he held his peace. Because Moses said, this happened because they didn't sanctify God. To sanctify means to give them, to sanctify means to give the appropriate due worship, reverence. They didn't reverence God. They didn't do what God said. They didn't approach God the way God said to approach him. They did it their way. They made their own thing up, and God killed them. Now, they worshiped. They brought an offering to God, but much like Cain. Cain, we knock Cain all the time, but he brought an offering to God. That's more than a lot of people bring. A lot of people don't bring God anything. God's so far out of their thought life, they don't care anything about God. At least Cain was bringing an offering, right? No, he brought the wrong offering. You come to God, you got to come to God his way. If you get saved, you got to get saved God's way. You can't get saved your way. There's only one way to salvation. And when we worship God, we worship the God of the Bible. We don't worship an imaginary God that we want or contrive or the way we want. Amen? So just so you have that, you know that, that there is strange fire that can be offered. Strange fire is what you worshiping God the way you just think God should be worshipped or whatever God you want to worship. Um, Okay. Now we're going to get into it a little bit. Number one thing that I want to, uh, now, the biggest part that we're going to get into is the theological issues, okay? The theological issues. But before we get into the theological issues, um, I want to take you to one more place, which is Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And some of y'all that have been here on a Sunday night know exactly what I'm about to say. You just read a place where God refused worship. Not only did he refuse it, but he killed those that offered it. God's holy. God hasn't changed. God's still holy. And he still expects us to sanctify him as we worship him. Okay? So just because we're in the New Testament time, we're in the church age, doesn't mean God doesn't have to be sanctified anymore. He's still got to be sanctified. He's still got to be reverenced, okay? He's still got to be given the appropriate due. He is God, okay? He holds our life in his hands. He holds the whole world in his hands. He hasn't released any bit of his rule or reign, okay? So Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah starts out the whole book of Isaiah with this precedent. If you look at verse number 10, God rebukes the nation of Israel for worshiping him. How about that? That's how you start out a book. They, 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 get, they get really um, on, God's, uh, on God's angry. He's angry because they worship him wrong. Okay? And this is what's sad, is that in our generation, people really don't care anymore. They just do whatever they want, however they want, and it doesn't matter what you say. But God's still the same. And here in Isaiah, he gets on to them for worshiping him the way that they want. I mean, how many of you think, how many of you, now this is my thing about John the Baptist. John the Baptist actually turned people away from being baptized. Some of the people came to John the Baptist to get baptized, and John the Baptist said, no, I've never seen a preacher do that. I've never seen a preacher turn anybody away from an altar. I've never seen, but John the Baptist, which Jesus said he was the greatest, right? John the Baptist said, no, where are your fruit of repentance? Where's your tears? Where's your sorrow? Where's your, hey, my old life, I'm ready for that new life. Where is that? They were just getting baptized because everybody else was, and he turned them away, which I don't think anybody would do that in our generation. I hope I'm wrong. But what happens, though, is that people are just so carefree right now. They really don't care what God said. So God wants to be sanctified in his worship. Look at verse number 10. This is what he tells 
his people. Y'all know Israel is his people, right? Old Testament. Look what he calls them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So that's not a good introduction. That, that means that you've angered God. If, if you're from where I'm from and you're simple, if God ever tells you that you rule Sodom and Gomorrah, he's mad at you. Okay? We've, we've messed up somewhere. Okay? So look what happens in verse 11. To of your sacrifices unto me, says the Lord, I'm full of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of the fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who required this at your hand? To tread my court, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot. Away with it, it is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me, I'm weary to bear them. That's God. So who instituted the new moons? Who instituted the feast? Who instituted the Sabbath? Who instituted the incense? Who instituted the offerings? God did. God required that of them. But he told them he was tired of them doing it. Because they weren't doing it rightly they weren't doing it with a right heart they weren't doing it the way god said to do it and so is there ever a time god doesn't want our worship yes when we worship him wrong or when we worship the wrong god okay so yes it worship is important um today in our generation we have what i call the worship of worship makes sense don't it the worship of worship is when worship is elevated to a point that God never elevated it to. Our generation will have a worship concert in City Hall out in front of it, two hours, and call it revival and never preach the gospel. God didn't call us to have worship concerts. He called us to preach the gospel. He called us to make disciples. He called us to baptize. He called us to lead others to Christ. Our job is to go out in the highways and byways and compel people to come in, not to go out and let our guitars be known, but to go out and let Jesus be known. That's our job. I'm not knocking worship. God deserves worship. But worship cannot take precedence over what is right. What is right is evangelism, making disciples, preaching the gospel, baptizing, and sharing with those that are lost. That's our job. The worship of worship is when worship actually takes precedence. Now, you may have gotten into a rhythm with this. Worship of worship is whenever you need to pray or fast or study God's word or just simply obey what he said to do. But you'd rather just turn on some worship music and chill. Worship music is good, but it can take the place of obedience. Worship music is good, but it can take the place of obedience because one of the things that happens is, especially when you get involved with this group, is it can, it can replace what God required of me. And that's exactly what they did. They had gotten to a place where their hearts no longer were God's. They were no longer doing the things that God wanted them to do, but they were still doing the Sabbath, still doing the feast, still doing everything else. So what happened was worship began to soothe their conscience from their disobedience. And that's the danger of when worship becomes, when we worship our worship. I've done it in my own life. So I'll point the finger at me. There's been times that I know I should have studied or prayed or I should have fasted or I should have done something, but I turned on worship music and just let it roll, let, let it ride. When, but what takes us deeper is prayer, fasting, the Word of God, studying the Word of God, and just being intimate with God. Is worship part of that? Yes. But if worship, if worship goes, if worship is replaced, replacing those things, then we've gone off rail. 
And I believe in our generation, we have a lot of people that have worship of worship. It can replace our time in prayer, our time in the word, meditating on the word. It can replace our obedience to God. It can even replace our evangelism. I know it. I've gone to churches that do this stuff. Okay, so I'm not talking about something I don't know anything about. I've been there. I've done that. Um, I didn't get the T-shirt because I don't believe in buying stuff like that. But what happens, though, is people think that they're doing a great and noble thing by going out to City Hall and having a worship concert when God called us to go preach. So uh, there's a huge difference. Just study on that and pray, and you'll see. Um, the other thing on that, the worship of worship, that I, and I kind of alluded to it, but it's a money-making thing. You're, you won't be able to get a CD, DVD, go to a conference, get a T-shirt, any of that without forking over some money. One of the biggest things that you'll see as we look deeper, now we may not get to it in this one, but if you look deeper, both of these ministries are very closely aligned in the prosperity message. Uh, so you'll see that it's all about the Benjamins. It's all about the money. Um, your, your, even your uh, conferences about worship are going to have a VIP section. Um, whenever these guys do conferences, you may not know this, but they have to get picked up in certain kind of cars, stay in certain kind of hotels, have certain kind of food, have certain kind of money arrangements before they even come. They get paid thousands of dollars to put on worship. I don't even call it worship. It's concerts, okay? It's a money-making thing. So that's another thing. If, if, if money was out of it, things would be different, but it's a money-making thing. Um, the other thing that it is is it's emotionalism. Um, this is a side I'm, I wasn't going to get too far on, but I just want to drop this into your uh, radar, okay? Emotionalism is whenever you manipulate people's emotions. How would we do that in this generation, okay? It's really easy. Everybody does it. It's called copycat. Dark room, colored lighting, a little bit of fog, and a lot of bass and reverb. You've set the mood. It's called emotional ploys. Um, you'll never in those places see the lights come on, none of that, and just somebody preaching the Bible. Okay? Um, it's got to have that emotional aspect to it. D- dark room. Red or blue, yellow, kind of colored lighting. Bass guitar, strong, reverb. It's all about emotionalism. If you take all that away, they're not going to make any money. So it's, it's emotionalism. It's playing on people's emotions. Um, so there's more to that. I just wanted to drop that into you. Let's get on to theology, okay? Turn with me, if you will. Turn with me, if you will, to... Let's start out in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Y'all doing okay? All right. Now we're about to start getting a little nitty gritty. We're going to look at theology, and then I'm just going to share with you a couple of the lyrics of some songs. I'm gonna, we're going to look at theology, look at some of the quotes that these people have said, some of the things that they teach, and um, why it's not good. So it's not just little things. We're not just splitting hairs. We're not just talking about, well, you know, um, they don't wear ties at their church. You know, they're going to hell. It's not like that, okay? It's not like that. These are major theological differences, and that's why. Um, kind of like I shared with you about the Mormon church, those are major theological differences. I believe in only one God, and he's eternal. Okay, so um, to get into this, I'm going to share with you a quote uh, from the head guy of Jesus Culture slash Bethel Music. Um, He says, Jesus laid aside his divinity as he sought to fulfill his assignment given to him. Let me say that again. Jesus laid aside his divinity as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him. So if Jesus laid aside his divinity, divinity is another word for divine, which is the plural of deity, which means Jesus laid aside his godhood. So if you believe Jesus is God and paid for your sin debt on the cross, this should get your attention. 
page 88 of his book, he says that Jesus laid aside his divinity. Let me share this with you. If Jesus can lay aside his divinity, he's not divine. If you're God, you're God. And if he's God, he can never not be God. Everything that Jesus ever did was as God. He might have been God in flesh, but he's still God. He was God on the cross. He's God in the grave. He's God today. He was God yesterday. He's God tomorrow. God's always been God because God's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're going to see that in the second Hebrews 13. But Jesus has never changed. Okay, he's always been God. He's never changed in the fact of who he is. He's always been God. If there's ever a moment that Jesus is not God, then he's not God ever. You don't go from being God to being not God and then being God again, then not God again, and then God again. God is God. He's eternally God. That means there's never a moment that he's not God. Okay? He's God on the mountain, God in the valley. He don't lose his Godhead as he goes into the valley. He's God. Okay? So there's more into this. There's some theological truths that we would have, we, we could really kind of dig down into, but there are, uh, and I would encourage you, A.W. Tozer was really good in this area. Um, he wrote an awesome book about the attributes of God, but God has certain attributes about him like love, holiness, righteousness, truth, light. These are attributes of God that are always there because God is God. They are part of who he is. It's not what he does. It's who he is. An attribute is who he is. So God can't not be God. This guy says, and his name is Bill Johnson. He says that Jesus laid aside his divinity on page 87 and 88 of his book. So that right there ixnays this ministry. If I lead people to this ministry and then they believe that Jesus could lay aside his divinity then I'm going to mislead them in their souls, okay? But it calls into further question some other things, but let me just show you right here in John chapter 8, verse 56. This is one of the more famous passages here. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, there are not yet, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. God here is letting the Pharisees know that Abraham saw him. This was a thousand years earlier. So that means that he's telling them that he is the eternal one. He is the great I am. There's never been a moment that he didn't exist. He's always existed. He was, you know, in heaven before there was a heaven. He created heaven. He created the angels. He created dust, gas, molecules, atoms. He created earth. He created us. He stood before Abraham. He's the great I am. And they tried to kill him for this. Um, this here is one of the clearest points where Jesus is declaring that he's God. I alluded to it earlier. For the sake of time, I'll just tell you the reference. Hebrews 13, verse 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ. It says, it doesn't say, you know, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? So that's my final authority, not Bill Johnson. My final authority told me that Jesus has never changed. That means he's never not been God. Okay? He's always been God. He's the same. If he's God today, then he was God yesterday. If he was God yesterday, he's always been God. And he'll always be God. So this, um, what this actually is, is if you want to get technical, you can research this. This is called the kenosis theory. What Bill Johnson is espousing is called the kenosis theory in theological terms. What that means is that Jesus emptied himself in order to come here. This is not true. What Jesus did is he laid aside glory. He laid aside glory. How do we know this? The Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory came upon him, and he was whiter than any fuller could white anything, the Bible says. And Peter, who knew that this would be sacrilege to the Jews, said he was ready to build a tabernacle for Jesus right there. 
Because he was that beautiful. His glory came on him a little bit before he went to the cross, right there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But God, no man can see face to face. No one can just stand before God in flesh and blood and not get burned up and consumed because our God is a consuming fire. He's holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah stood before in that vision, Isaiah couldn't even talk. That angel had to come and put that coal on his lips. Before he could even talk. And so for Jesus to dwell on earth incarnate, he had to lay down, lay aside glory so that nobody would be blinded, okay? He was housed in carnate flesh, but he didn't stop being God. We believe, the church has always believed in what's called the hypostatic union. That is meaning that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Not 50% and 50%, not God on his good day, man on his bad day. But what Bill Johnson is teaching is that he was 0% God and 100% man. There's a reason for it, because they have a supernatural school of ministry, In order for them to get more people, they have to teach people that Jesus was just a man operating with the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus was just a man, then you're just a man and you can do the same things. Well, that'll get your business up. But Jesus is God, okay? Now, can we do some of the things? Yeah, I mean, through the inspiration and power of the Holy Ghost, God can do anything through us. But it's not because Jesus was just a man. It's because the Holy Spirit is in us, okay? Um, So here's the difference. Um, That's called the kenosis theory. Now, divinity is not divinity if it can be removed. If you can lay down divinity, it's not divinity. If you can stop being God, you never were God. Jesus, for one moment, was never not God. This is the big one. Second one, born again. Um, Turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Here's the next one with Bill Johnson. Quote, this is from another one of his books. Quote, Jesus became a sinner on the cross. He was no longer the son of God. He chose to suffer in hell for three days. Then he was born again. That's heresy, guys. Of the, that's heresy of the worst kind for several reasons. But that's heresy, just straight-up heresy. Um, this is very much leaning into the Word of Faith movement. So if you listen to anybody like Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Hagen, uh, the Rama School of Ministry, any of that kind of stuff, Jesse Duplantis, uh, what's the guy in Colorado? Andrew Womack. All these kind of people, are that's word of faith, that's that. That's that. They all believe that. They all teach that. They all preach that. Let me tell you, biblically, and as your pastor, Jesus did not get born again because he was a sinner. He never got born again. He was not a sinner. He didn't die and suffer in hell as a sinner. He did, he, look, he died on the cross. The payment for our sins was on the cross, not in hell. Okay? Our payment for our sins was on the cross. He shed his blood for our sins on the cross. He didn't suffer for our sins in hell, okay? He didn't suffer in hell. A couple of points that you need to know. Number one, for somebody to get born again, that means they're dead spiritually. God is a spirit. For somebody to be born again, they have to be dead spiritually. God is a spirit. So again, it tells you that he, didn't, he was not God at that time. Heresy of the worst sort again. Um, furthermore, furthermore, it just doesn't, make, it doesn't pass the muster test if you'll just simply think about it logically. Let me ask you a question. If you believe Jesus was in hell being tortured, who do you think was doing the torturing? Because the the devil's not bound in hell right now. Last time I checked, he visited our houses every now and then. 
The last time I checked, he's still at work in the world. He's, he's not going to be bound for a thousand years until after the Lord comes back. So who's in charge of hell right now? God is. Who's Jesus? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. But right now, the devil is not down there with the demons tormenting people right now. He's tormenting people here. Okay, here's the deal. In order for Jesus... Now, this, I'll pick this up from Kenneth Hagin's book. Kenneth Hagin, in his book, On the Authority of the Name of Jesus, he said that after three days, the Father looked down into hell, saw Jesus still writhing and suffering, and said, it's enough. It's enough. And borned him again. That's some Oklahoma talk. Borned him again. So... That's the word faith movement. Now, that's not my Jesus. That's like a Mormon Jesus or something, but that's not my Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus did not get born again spiritually. God is spirit. Okay? So how do I know? Well, I mean, a few reasons. Now, some of y'all know this, okay, because you've heard my word faith teaching before, but this you got to get John chapter two. Look at verse number eighteen. It says then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Well, will thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What did Jesus say? He said, I will raise it up. He didn't say, my father will. He didn't say the spirit will. He didn't say, I'll suffer enough, and then somebody from heaven will send the SOS out for me. He said, I will raise it up. That means if he had the ability to raise his body from the grave, then he was God when he raised from the grave. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't have to get born again. He couldn't have done, he couldn't have raised his own body if he had to get born again first. Okay? So it mixes up so much stuff, but just so that you plainly get it, how many of y'all remember whenever Jesus was on the cross? There was a thief. When Jesus was on the cross, there was a thief next to him, and he told the thief, this day you're going to be with me somewhere. Do you remember where he said you're going to be with me? He said, you're going to be with me this day in paradise. Does that sound like suffering in hell? So either Jesus is lying or this guy's lying. Either Jesus lied to that thief on the cross and they didn't go to paradise together, or this guy is lying. Both can't be right. Um, because one said they're going to paradise, the other one said they went to hell and suffered. Again, he chose to suffer in hell for three days. That's a quote, direct quote from his book. So, um, that's the born-again heresy, which is really famous in word faith circles. Turn with me, if you will, real quick. We'll pick up the pace. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. I told you, I, I didn't think I was going to have enough, and then the more I got into it, I'm, I still got two more pages of notes y'all are going to get exempted from. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus. Well, okay. What's that mean, guys? That means somebody can come and preach to you a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. If, if he cometh to you and preaches another Jesus. Now, let me, let me preface this, because what Paul was telling them, what Paul was telling the Corinthian church is that they were so worldly. He said, and, and I, I kind of get like this with some people too. I, I mean, I'm not trying to be like Paul. And just He was like, Man, you guys are so worldly. Somebody can come preaching some Joe Blow gospel, and you'll just bear with them. You'll be like, okay, well, they, they, you know, they said the buzzword. Don't matter what else they say. 
So that's what he's kind of saying here. But just notice the language. If he comes that preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you've not received, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you might well bear with him. So Paul here is saying that somebody can come and preach another Jesus with another spirit and another gospel. And he was down on the Corinthian church. How many of y'all know they had issues? He was down on the Corinthian church, but he said, somebody's going to come and preach another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit, and y'all are going to bear with them. So he was getting on to them because they weren't holding to the truth. And they were going to get misled. So that tells you that not everybody that says the name Jesus is talking about our Jesus. There is another Jesus. There is another spirit. There is another gospel. Another Jesus is any Jesus that doesn't line up with this one. So if somebody tells you that Jesus was an elephant, don't line up with this, does it? If somebody tells you that Jesus was, you know, uh, not born of a virgin, doesn't line up with this. If, G- if somebody tells you he didn't really rise from the dead bodily, doesn't line up with this. If somebody tells you he's not God, doesn't line up with this. If somebody tells you that he suffered in hell for three days and then had to get born again, don't line up with this. So that's another Jesus. Um. Go a couple of pages over to Galatians 1. Should just be one page over. Maybe two, depending on your Bible. Galatians 1, look at verse number 6. I marvel, same, same Paul, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But listen to this part. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So Paul's up in the ante here. Now he's saying, if we, even if I preach a different gospel to you, if, if Sunday morning you come in this church and I start preaching you a different gospel than the one, than this gospel, let me be accursed, is what he's saying. He said, if somebody comes to you, if we or even an angel, how many of y'all know today's generation, today's church, if an angel walked through the doors of that church or floated down from the ceiling, it don't matter what they said, they would do anything. Everybody today is all about dreams and visions and, you know, they don't even weigh it against Scripture. They had a dream or a vision, they're going to, you know, that's gospel for them. Because they had a dream or a vision, and they got the tingles. But you know what? The devil is an imitator. The devil, he masquerades as an angel of light. And here, Paul's saying, you know what? Even if an angel floats down or appears in your dream, or maybe tonight when you're by your bed, if an angel, hello, I'm angel jabroni, and I'm here to tell you something about Jesus. If whatever that angel tells you doesn't line up with this, then Paul says, let him be accursed. Let that angel be accursed. And you're not to accept that gospel. If I begin preaching you a different gospel than the one in this Bible, I should be accursed according to the word of God. Well, what about these people that preach a different gospel? Right? Um, now, I've got to speed it up a little bit. But just so you know, I'm not going to leave Hillsong out of it. Here's a quote from Brian Houston, who is the leader of Hillsong, who recently had to resign in disgrace because he covered up his father's sexual sins in the church. That Hillsong. Um, He said this. This is at the 11 minute 52 mark of one of his sermons called Living for the Master as Well. He said, we serve the same God as Muslims. Allah to a Muslim, to us, Abba, Father God. We serve the same God as Muslims. No, it's not what my Bible says. That's not what my Bible says. So there's only one God. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He came and made a way where there was no way. He nailed our sins to the cross. If we believe on him by faith... 
then God imputes that righteousness of Jesus to us. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, and I'm, I'm going to pick it up. Um, one last thing. Let me get on wacky lyrics. I, didn't, this, I'm, I don't have time to go through all this with you. There's um, one, of the, one of the cautions that you have. Real briefly, go to Ephesians 5. Let me show you this. And this will be our last scripture. Ephesians 5. So not only is there worship of worship and wrong worship and theological issues, there's also wacky lyrics, which is the smaller of the potatoes, but it is a potato. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 19, it says, um, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Spiritual song. What does it mean for something to be a spiritual song? It has to be of the Spirit of God. So if somebody sings a song about God, it's got to line up with the Bible, okay? I'm not talking about tempo. You can, use a, you can use a ukulele or a harmonica, or you can be a cappella, or you can use a bass guitar. I don't, it's not about the method. It's about what you say and who you're saying it to that makes it spiritual, okay? You can hum it. You can tap it. You can bluegrass it. You can rap it. I, I, that don't matter, It is who you're talking to and what you're saying about them that makes it spiritual or not. And the problem with this crowd is it comes from a bad source. It comes from a wrong gospel, a wrong view of God, a false view of God, a heretical view of God. These people were actually kicked out of the church in the 100s and 200s. There were church councils. Arius did the same thing. Arius was a false teacher who taught that Jesus was like God, but not God. God being the Son, and Jesus being the Son Ray. He was very close to it, but he just wasn't it while he was here. And nobody believed him, but he was a masterful songwriter. And he infiltrated the church in the 300s with music. And he overwhelmed the church. And they all bought into his doctrine. They all bought into his doctrine, except for one guy, Nicholas. Nicholas fought him, which is a great story at another time. But um, just to show you that music can be manipulated by the devil, it's not new. It's not new. This happened in church history. We're repeating it today. Um. So spiritual songs. Here's a wacky lyric. One of the more famous songs from... Hill, uh, Jesus culture slash Bethel is a song called No Longer Slaves. Looks good on the surface. Sounds great. I mean, it's emotionally pull you in. It's great. However, there's a phrase in it that is so terribly wrong. Do y'all know what the phrase is? Your blood flows through our veins. Your blood flows through my veins. That That's a lyric from one of the most famous songs that they sing. And it's sung in churches all over America, well-meaning, good-hearted Christians just sitting there, and they're declaring before God and everyone that God's blood flows through their veins. This is heresy. This is not true. Jesus' blood was shed at Calvary. When Jesus went to heaven, he didn't carry... The Bible says, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven with flesh and blood. So when Jesus went to heaven, he had shed all his blood on the cross. And so, that blood was shed. Faith in the blood saves us. But the blood don't get infused in your body. I've had direct conversations with word of faith preachers about the born again Jesus and about this issue right here. And I've walked away from ministry opportunities. I've walked away from ministry associations. I've walked away from ordinations. I've walked away from friends I've, because I'm, I'm going to cut ties on those. These are non-negotiables. Jesus' blood was shed at Calvary. It's not in me. Jesus is in me spiritually. He's in me. Christ in me is the hope of glory. 
But his physical blood, that's, that's my blood in there. I, I, I'm the one that got to answer for that. His blood was shed on the cross. But there's more to that. I, I, I wish I had time to get into it more, but if you want to write this down, Romans 3, 24 through 25 says that faith in the blood is what saves you, okay? Faith in the blood. Not the blood in you. Faith in the blood, not the blood in you. That's Romans 3, 24 and 25. Um, that's part of wacky lyrics. That is um, uh, No Longer Slaves is the name of that song. Now, real briefly as I close, there are some other smaller potato things that go along with this group. Um, they have new age tendencies. There's a reason for that that I don't have time to get into. If you study, if you've ever studied the New Age and you look at them, you're going to see it in their midst. They use tarot cards. How many of y'all know what tarot cards are? This is what fortune tellers use. They use these things. They call them destiny cards. They have dream centers, and they use these destiny cards so that you'll know what's going to happen to you. They're called tarot cards. They just change the name on it. That's it. Um, they do something called grave soaking. Have y'all heard of that? How many of y'all know what it means to, to, to grave suck or grave soak? Raise your hand if you know what that means. Okay. What that means is there was somebody that was like maybe a really great preacher. They had a great anointing on their life or whatever or they miss them, or whatever, they'll go and they'll physically lay on top of the grave and suck up, try to suck up the spirit. It's called grave sucking or grave soaking. This church does that. You can find them on YouTube doing it. They'll leave their ministry school and go do it. They'll find different tombs and lay on top of them and try to do that. It's new age. How many of y'all know that once somebody dies, we're not supposed to communicate with them. It's called necromancy. There's no communication with the dead. We're not supposed to suffer a witch to live, all these types of things. But communicating with the dead is not what we're supposed to do. See, whenever David's son died, he got up. He was fasting. He was crying. He was tarrying before God. But when his son died, he got up. And he said, they said, why are you getting up now? Now you're supposed to be crying out. And he said, well, no, I can't. Look, he said, my son can't come to me anymore. He was praying that his son would return and live. But once his son died, he said, my son can't come to me anymore. But one day I'll go where he is. Amen. That's biblical. That's what David said. And that's what God says. So when somebody's we're not supposed to communicate with the dead. There's way more into it. Grave soaking or grave sucking, however you want to say it, it's there. There's also things like glitter coming out of the air vents, rocks being under the pews, um, huh? feathers falling. Yep. Um, and, and they have people that have left their church that admitted to putting those things in the air ducts. So they do. I mean, you can find it. So, but they keep the show going for the people that are paying. I mean, um, here's the other deal that they do. They, there is, uh, and you should research this if you want to. It's called the Kundalini spirit. There's a spirit of Kundalini in the church world. Uh, the Kundalini spirit is actually a Hindu demonic spirit. It's entered into the church world through Christian yoga and things like this. Um, you can research that on your own. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do another sermon on that at some point. But Kundalini, look that up. Um, if you if you look at their fire tunnels, and there's a ministry that's done this. His name is Andrew Strom. He's a Pentecostal preacher. So this is not somebody that's denying the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, he's a Pentecostal preacher, but he has this thing where he's actually shown a Hindu service given over to the Kundalini spirit and these people at Bethel with the fire tunnels and their mannerisms, their actions are all exactly the same, exactly the same. And one of the hallmarks for somebody that's been uh, demonically infiltrated by the Kundalini spirit is they have these things like this. It's called a Christian thing, but they, uh, they can't stop moving their head. 
They're not in control. Well, one of the fruit of the Spirit, last one, in the King James Bible was temperance. Other translations call it self-control. Self-control. Let's see, if you're, if, if you're not in control like that, I've seen, I've seen them, you know, they'll violently shake their head back and forth and, you know, or they'll say, somebody's mom's name starts with the letter Q. Who is it? You know, kind of like um, lottery prophecy, um, those kind of things. So those things happen. Um, these, again, are on the smaller potatoes. I'm more looking at the theological perspective of it and the false gospel part. Um, the last one that I'll leave you with is that uh, the spirit is subject to the prophet. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. The Spirit is subject to the prophet. So if you're a prophet of God and you're moving in the Spirit of God, there's always a veil of control that you have. These people, when they get involved in that, they lose control of their bodies. And I'll leave it at that because it gets into some wild stuff. So anyways, this is uh, your introduction to why we don't use Jesus Culture Bethel. 